This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Tim Jones, a researcher and a coach who has extensive experience of working in the field of youth development in football. And in the first part, we talked about his interesting work in football academies and looking at the type of social competencies, social emotional learning that is going on in these environments. And for the second part, we will look into some details of his work. We will talk about organizational cultures in sport and where Tim sees the future of his own research and hopefully broader research in this field of understanding the broader development in football academies going. So welcome back, Tim. I think as a start, I will just throw you a provocation. So we talk so much about life skills and dual careers and all that other nice stuff that should be going in the football academies. Is this just a way of trying to save the face of the sport after all the critique that has been around? I think that some of the, the, the popular media that came out around this stuff really helped to bring it to the public space, but also that it's really very tough to know exactly what's going on in these talent development environments. I mean, in, in, in my own sense, I can only draw on the one academy I worked for in speaking to many peers who work at, currently work in academies and then the people that I interviewed. But unless we're going to spend you know, significant time in these environments, we can't really properly know what it is that the coaches are doing and, and trying to achieve. And I think that it's really important to say as well that practice is really very varied across academies. So I think there's a strong chance, and I hope that there is, that some coaches might have been listening to the first part and thinking, well, hang on a minute, I, I, I do take this very seriously and I do do stuff in this space. And that's great. I, I hope they reach out so that I can talk to them. That would be good. That would be a good response. So in terms of it as a, as a provocation, you know, a long time ago, I think it was 2011, the, the, the P was put together by the Premier League. And some of this stuff was put in, but when you read the, the language, it does start to point to life skills, social competencies, and so on, being very much the realm of the off-field support or off-field engagement that players have. And I think that's, that's due an upgrade because certainly academies are doing a lot more than that. Uh, I mean, as an example, one of the coaches I spoke to was very, very interested in self-awareness and the creation of self-awareness in the players that that he had. So 
we mentioned IDPs before, the individual development plans. And he was extremely well-versed on what each of those IDPs for every individual player that he had was and what they wanted to learn about themselves. And as a result of that, was putting practices on regularly that allowed them to work through some of those things, to be challenged on them, and then to be questioned as well afterwards so that they could adjust that IDP uh, and really help that young player develop a, a sense of not only who they are as a player, but also as a person. Yeah, and I threw in this provocation, but also when I was doing some interviews with, with coaches when I was at Liverpool John Moores University some years ago, I could see that some coaches are really very concerned and, for example, that dual career aspect of it. So in, in women's football, one of the coaches was really concerned that, you know, now that in women's football there are more opportunities to play professionally, uh, now he was seeing that some of the young players would be just choosing any education that is like very quick and easy and as little hours as possible. Whereas before, when women's football wasn't professional, then the women would be taking their education seriously and being ambitious about education and really thinking through what they want to study. So it wasn't just a tick box exercise that you have to have some kind of education going on at the same time and I mean you are some someone who knows a lot and you're working in that women's football context as well so maybe you can reflect a bit on that you know we see this development in women's football and many people see that say that it's great that women are getting opportunities to play professionally and in many ways it is isn't there also a danger that some of those problematic features that are part of professional football in the men's side might be then taking some ground in women's game as well? Yeah, it could, it could be. It could be. And I suppose then the, the female side of the game would benefit from the past experiences of, of, of the male side of the game. I mean, I remember talking to, to one of my previous lecturers who said that when he was working in a football academy for young males, young boys, that at 15, 16, they would just go and do a, a BTEC, a, a sort of a lower level qualification in tourism and just get it done as a tick box exercise, as you described it, to just get past that bit so that they could really concentrate on the football. Whereas now, you know, the, the requirements both from a governance point of view, a policy point of view, but also what clubs are trying to put in place. You know, the, the education that scholars go through is is much better. And, and the position that I'm in at the moment at the university, I'm, I'm really fortunate that you know, the vast majority of my players are undergraduate or postgraduate students. And that actually, we're quite a unique proposition that players can come to us and play in the SWPL2, the Scottish Women's Premier League 2, but also study uh, their degree at the same time. And it has been interesting. Uh, this has been my first uh, period where I have been involved in recruitment for this coming season. And it was really interesting to speak to certain individuals and figure out quite quickly that they actually only wanted to come to us to play the football. And the the academics was not even coming as a as a second thought. It was a total afterthought. Oh, really? Yeah. And probably for our environment, and as I said to them, 
that wouldn't work because they need to come to us to want to also study. And that instrumental approach to education that is quite often, you know, it's like the plan B or something you have to do on the side. So from what you're telling me that that might be a feature that like is part of when young women also see that they can make it as a professional, then education might be just something you have to do a bit on the side because it's required, yeah. I think that that's possibly some way off, though. I mean, we spoke about 0.01% in the men's game. I've no idea what the statistic would be in the female game, but it must be a lot smaller, I would guess. I mean, there's less females playing, but the positions to be able to be paid to play. Uh, I mean, in this country, in, in Scotland, I think it's four teams in the top league that are full-time, you know, so there's there's very few numbers of players actually getting paid to play. So, you know, I don't think many of the young players coming through are genuinely looking at it as the only way in which they're going to support themselves. And previously, when I was at the University of South Wales, uh, I also took a female team there. And you know, quite often the players would be talking about, you know, what they want to do next, whether that's coaching, teaching, uh, and so on. And and very often picking professions that were quite close to their playing environment, you know, like I say, whether that's sort of coaching, teaching, but also that would allow them to continue to play. So that might become one of the problems that, you know, dual career is is tough enough, but when you have to choose a career that then allows you to play as well, yeah, that can become tough. Yeah, absolutely. And to little detour to women's football, and now if we jump back to your research, the master's research that you did in the boys or men's football academy context. And in the first part, we already talked about, you know, looking at the bigger context. So not just coaches and what they do, but kind of that they are also part of this bigger cultural environment and that team culture and so on and some of the models that you used in in your research were christopher hendrickson's models of athletic talent development environments and then this environmental success models that are very familiar to anyone who has worked with researching athlete development and more from this holistic ecological approach so maybe just briefly just a little introduction to those models and what you did with with that in in your particular research sure yeah so because of the the way in which i conducted the research i was then looking for existing models to start to try to explain what it was that I'd gotten back from the coaches in interviews. And because I was using the Kessel wheel framework, which is, as I said before, positioned in education, the education space, formal education space, one of the ways in which the wheel is positioned is is that it talks about aligning learning opportunities from the outside in, so from the community that the, the young person is in, all the way into the middle, which is the social emotional learning itself. And so, you know, that really was very much aligned to the ATDE model uh, that you alluded to before, where it's this recognition that the wider environment that the young person is involved in will have an impact on the environmental success factors, but also then those outcomes. And so, although I couldn't really use the ATDE properly because I hadn't seen the environment 
I didn't know enough about um, the players, the parents, the communities that these academies were, were happening, uh, were, where the coaches were operating in. I still used it to at least try to explain what, what it was that the coaches were trying to tell me. And so the environment of success factors one model was, was really quite successful in that trying to figure out what the artifacts were and the tools that the coaches were using in order to achieve social emotional competency development. And that's when I started to move a little bit away from SEL towards SEC, so social emotional competencies, because it's quite, it was quite clear that the coaches weren't using a formalized SEL framework but they were impacting and influencing the development of social-emotional competency. So one of the things that was a cultural artifact very, very clearly for all of the coaches was that you have to know the players in order to be able to coach them. And as much as that's something that for myself came up pretty regularly on coach education courses, in this space it was specifically about, well, how do I get to know them and how do I use that information to support not only the performance outputs, but also social emotional outputs? And quite often uh, those models like Christopher Hendrickson's models and, and one part of it is this organizational culture from, from Shine. And you would talk about those artifacts and then you would talk about espoused values and then the implicit assumptions. And sometimes this approach is used to be uh, used to kind of reveal the inconsistencies between the values that I espouse that this is what we are doing yes. and and then that more fundamental culture or, or that is like underlying this is what we actually do and sometimes those values are not consistent so when I mentioned whether dual career is just something or life skills or social competencies or is something that Everybody says that, yes, we are doing that. But then the implicit assumptions are that we have to be just producing elite players. So those two don't really go together. So I wonder if you identified any of those tensions or whether the coaches talked about tensions in, per in terms of what they want to do and what they feel that they have to do. They absolutely did identify those tensions and quite often they would point to some form of framework that the club has put into place, whether that was, you know, certain values that they as a organization would try to um, enact and therefore would ask of their players. And, and this is where I'm, I'm not comfortable um, in how this works. You quite often speak to clubs about what it is, what the behaviors are that, they want from their players and they'll point to things like you know hard work honesty um and and just a whole host of others and you know, sometimes it will be you know as little as three and i've even seen ones where it's like 15 and i'm thinking well how does a 12 year old uh, know these 15 know what they mean know what they look like were they involved in putting that together i think that that was one that really came up that you know, some coaches were very aware of co-constructing these values and these behaviors with the players and others really, really weren't and that those were really prescribed by the club. And the problem with that would be that you're setting up the players to be confessional, 
and you're setting up a system that is, again, I don't think intentionally, but setting up a system of surveillance where the players become aware that they have to behave in a certain way in order to be considered and to continue as an academy player. Um, my problem with that is that it then perhaps doesn't give them the opportunities to make mistakes in these areas. So we you know, spoke very briefly about conflict negotiation or just having conflict before. And one of the coaches that I spoke to in the course of the conversation came to his own realization that when he's working with, I think they were under nines, that he's very, very quick to shut down any poor behavior or any sort of flare-ups, as he put it. And that actually, as coaches, maybe we need to exercise some skillful neglect in those moments, be aware of it, make sure everyone's safe, but actually allow the players themselves to try and deal with it. And then, of course, if they can't, then we offer our support. But if we're sort of robbing them of these opportunities, it's, it's something that coaches in this space speak so lucidly about in terms of talking about technical development. We've got to allow them to make mistakes. We've got to allow them to be creative. And yet in this area, social emotional learning, social emotional competencies, it seemed like the coaching behaviors were very much more aligned to, well, that doesn't happen here. I can't allow that to happen. And I think that that speaks to issues of the coaches having to maintain their own reputation. The worry being that Usually, I'm out on the training field. There'll be at least one other team training at the same time. If my players are seen to be behaving poorly and I'm not immediately dealing with it, am I going to be considered to be a poor coach by those around me, and especially parents? Yeah, yeah. So it's the same same dilemma for coaches as well. That in the same way as the players have to fit in this certain type of frame of what it means to be a youth player in the same way the coaches have to fit a somewhat narrow frame of what it means to be a coach and I think it's a perfect example when you mention creativity maybe another one we can throw in is critical thinking yes we want young players who are creative and who can think critically but those things have to be within those boundaries that we set you know that the critical thinking shouldn't be the type of critical thinking that is, you know, challenging the co coaches <laughs> authority or the whole system. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, yeah. I want you to reflect on this, but, but not, not that reflection. Yeah, <laughs> not, not exactly. That one. Yeah. But you should reach this kind of conclusion from that. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things that, that I started to draw on in terms of trying to explain what some of the coaches were talking about maybe coming to their own realizations during the interviews or maybe talking a little bit more lucidly about what they do was this idea of skillful neglect. And, and one of the principles of it is can they announce their own errors, the players, I mean. So are we setting up a space where in all areas, social emotional learning included, where the players are allowed to and can be supported in announcing their own errors in this space. So, you know, if we're talking about maybe relationship skills, maybe one player speaks poorly to another or acts out during a game or whatever it might be. Can we get to a place where the player themselves makes that announcement, makes that realization that it's maladaptive, that it's not su supportive, that it's not what we do here? And that's something that I think 
the again the more experienced coaches were more aware of the techniques to allow that to happen and you mentioned that the experienced coaches as well we touched upon that in the first part that also they might be more reflective of those negative learning experience so we talked about identity foreclosure and the types of learning that you wouldn't hope that your players will have and so that brings me to this question about meaningfulness or what are the types of things that the coaches are trying to achieve with their practice so when I was a guest in your podcast and we talked about that meaningfulness of coaching and Obviously, that was not like the key, the research question for you. But when you are talking to these coaches, what was the sense of what makes it worthwhile for the coaches? We know that it's not an easy thing to be a coach in a football academy, that you also face pressures and so on. So what is the kind of implicit sense that you get from your interviewees? Yeah, the implicit sense was... The explicit sense. <laughs> I'll start there because <laughs> you know when when I ask those kinds of questions about you know what what is environmental success in this area, you know, they they really would point to well I want to be able to say one day that I've created or been part of the creation of a professional footballer. Then they'd start the, the sort of second and third things would would come to well I'd just like to have a footballer reach out to me in future and say how important or how influential I was and the club and other coaches my part in putting that environment together and then thirdly you know the the sort of I guess partly because they knew what I was asking about would point towards some of these social emotional competencies so but but we have to understand that primarily these coaches are being employed to create and produce professional footballers but I, I do think that there was a sense that for many of them within their clubs they were becoming more aware that they did have the agency the time and the power to also work in this space and I guess what was missing for me and what I didn't quite understand at the time and I still have trouble sometimes when when I am now speaking to people working in this space that my contention would be that these skills are actually really needed in order to be a very good professional footballer. But I think that there's still this cultural understanding, this sort of traditional aspect of it that says, well, so long as they are good enough to play in the first team, in another first team, then what does it matter what their character is? But I do think that we're moving into a very, very different space and um, I mean, I would point to something like the England national team at the moment and the work that the likes of Gareth Southgate have done. You know, I mean, that obviously points the way for others. It's very, very clear that the work that they're doing with what is primarily still young men uh, is more directed towards character development. Um, and so if players don't make it, then they've got a much better chance of being more successful in their other aspects of life and that's why this stuff is so important it's it's very very clear in the research that the more competent you are socially the more competent you are emotionally the much higher chance you have of being successful in whatever area of life you decide to go into and the less likely you are to engage in maladaptive behaviors 
I, I spoke to for for my podcast recently, um, Alfingva Burton, who was the coach for uh, Erling Haaland, the Norwegian footballer, and he was saying how you know the point wasn't necessarily in in the the club that he worked at, Brunner FC, to produce a footballer of the type of Erling Haaland. That is something that that just so happened to happen. But they also managed to create some other professional footballers. And then within that group of 30 players, whatever it was, he still has contact with most of them as their previous coach. And they're all successful in what they're doing. And it was really interesting to speak to someone there who, because they weren't bound by some of the policy, that they were able to create an environment that really allowed for the wider development of every single player. And I think that's what goes missing sometimes in in academies at the moment that, I mean, again, one of the papers that are referred to earlier, and I've been involved in these types of conversations where you're talking about an 11-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy, about whether they should stay or not about whether whether we think at 10, 11 years old that that player is going to become a professional and therefore should we keep them involved in this environment. And I always found those conversations really painful because not only because of the relationship that I'd built with these young players, but also that they'd already been involved in this academy for three years, four years. They've got some really close friends that developed you know, a, a sense of belonging that was about to be severed uh, and if if we don't work carefully in the social emotional competency stuff, then we run the risk of when we have to do that deselection, those players really struggling. Yeah, I think it was so interesting when you mentioned that these social and emotional competencies that the coaches would think that it's the, those players who don't make it are the ones who need them. But they would say that if you are good enough and you make it to be a professional and a star player then you can be whatever you know well but you could also the, almost sort of develop them later yeah but on the other hand you know if you think how much there is like pressure for elite athletes to be role models to present themselves in a certain way tell certain stories and i mean now we have debates about athlete activism when some athletes want to speak up about things unrelated to sport that they care about and whether that's an athlete's role to do that or not. So, I mean, certainly those players who get into that public space and and they will be, you know, talking to the media and so on, there's a lot of politics about, you know, how they present themselves and what they actually talk about and what not. So, yeah. Anyway, to get back to, I mean... You talk to the coaches about social competence development, whether they are explicitly working with that and how they do that. They might say that they are not, but then when you talk with them for a longer time, then a lot of things start to emerge and they would talk about situations and the things they do and the, how they develop awareness of those things as they uh, get more experience as coaches. Correct me if I got it wrong. And so, I'm sure that as a part of that research, you have picked up some things that you see that seem like good ideas, useful ideas, and things that other coaches probably would would be good for them to do those things as well. So maybe a few lessons learned from those interviews. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I've already spoken about individual development plans, and I think that it's important to 
try not to separate this stuff into its own silo, into its own box. I mean, the, the, the four corner model is very, very common, uh, commonly understood in, in, uh, in England and, and was put forward by the FA many years ago. And I think that because of the way that's structured, it's literally four squares in four corners. There is this unfortunate understanding of it as each of those being separate. And of course, they're not. And, and, and this is the point that if we're working with coaches to work in this space, the first thing to, to say is to validate that they, it can't be the only thing they're working with. So this is why then, although I use the SEL, the Casel uh, wheel as a, an underpinning, I then move slightly away from it towards the end of the research and then in my thoughts around how this actually works. Because that wheel is designed and the uh, tools that Casel put out are designed to explicitly teach these things. Whereas my understanding from the coaches that I was speaking to is that they quite often spoke about frustrations of not being able to work with some of this stuff because of their other responsibilities, which we've, we've spoken about already. Um, but some of the tools that came up, I mean, so the individual development plans, another interesting one that I put together was this sort of sense of troublemaking. And I think that uh, this came to me from uh, an, an adaption of this sort of talent needs trauma or desirable difficulties type stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is quite controversial, yeah. It so. is really, it is really mm-hmm. controversial. Yeah. And, and so uh, by troublemaking, I do really mean this sort of tongue-in-cheek, slightly mischievous sense that I got from coaches across the board, really, you know, the very different, you know, different ways of doing it, but in different age groups and with different people. So let me give you an example. You know, there was a coach that was working with a, a late teen who was really struggling with some of that self-management, some of the self-regulation against opposition that would try to rile him up, try to say things to put him off his game. And the coach decided uh, to, over a course of time, over sort of six weeks or so, that when they would play small-sided games, or more game-related stuff in practice, that he would do the same. And again, very tongue-in-cheek and very much needed the fact that he had a close relationship with this player in order to be successful. So that goes back to that cultural artifact of, you know, we need to know the players in order to be able to do these things effectively. But would regularly put him off, try and put him off his game. And at least at the beginning, didn't let him know that. And then over the course of, you know, two weeks later or whatever, would start to say, hey, have you, have you noticed anything about how I am with you in, in games? And, you know, the player's not daft. He, he understands, you know, is able to say, well, you're, you're uh, starting to try to put me off, like you're saying thing, these things to me. Once they've been able to announce that themselves, then the coach was able to say, well, why do you think I'm doing that? And the player's able to say, because I'm not very good at dealing with it. The coach then told me about a game later on. It was sort of, you know three, four weeks later down this timeline. They're playing in a, a heated game. Uh, he's got a, a tough opponent in the 1v1 situations. And this the opposition player is trying to get at him. And the player responds to him and says, oh, that's nothing. You should hear what my coach says to me. Again, very tongue-in-cheek. But there's that moment that we've created uh, some trouble for that player to deal with in training an appropriate challenge 
that then meant that in the space of self-management in this case, that player was able to then enact that in a performance environment. Yeah, I think when I mentioned that it's controversial, like you mentioned that it's very important to know the player and know what is appropriate for them because with that approach there's also the danger that the young player goes home and is ruminating for the rest of the day and the night like you know why is my coach bullying me and so yeah it's just that you know that coach athlete relationship has to be quite strong for you to be <laughs> doing this kind of troublemaking and you know yeah, and, and and that troublemaking can be across a team as well so you know, many of the coaches spoke about perhaps being a poor referee in game situations. And especially some of those that were working with young players, you know, they'd say that they'd deliberately give poor decisions, you know, give it to the other team or it'd be a free kick for for no real reason or, or penalty when it's not, that those kinds of things. And that the point was to help the players to refocus on what they can control. And you know, many of the coaches said that they were doing that because they'd actually experienced poor refereeing in the games themselves. But there's something else that they're doing there that perhaps they weren't aware of, which is creating a space for the players to self-regulate because they're experiencing something that is inherently unjust, but it's been enacted by the coach that they do trust, they do have a relationship with. And if they're able to respond to that in a in a positive way, to refocus, to regulate, then that's actually a really useful tool. Yeah. And we had some discussions on that earlier. We talked about that existential learning. And yeah, I think we that kind of bumps on the road thing is something that is our shared interest, but something that we, we have to be quite careful when we are thinking about who who benefits from that and who might not. Yeah, it's been such an interesting conversation and you have your own podcast, which is focused on coaches and coach development. And I encourage all the listeners to go and there are many wonderful conversations over there, more on this topic. I think for us to finish for today, I would be really just delighted to hear a little bit on, on the research that you're working on at the moment. And what can we expect to read from you in the next few months? Or you might be optimistic, but um, yeah, certainly in the future. Um, well, I'm 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 researching the role of the the, the sports coach developer, and um, you know some of this stuff that we've spoken about today will will transfer into my my research because certainly uh, aspects of the coach athlete relationship can be very similar between the coach developer and the coach obviously it's it's a it's a different it is a different relationship but there are there are a lot of uh, parallels at the moment i'm just conducting a, a a review of all of the literature relating to the coach developer so specifically the the literature where the coach developer is uh, sampled and, and and one of the units being sampled and what I'm finding there is that, uh, you know, we, we do have a burgeoning understanding of who these people are, but perhaps the, the what of what they do is, is still somewhat invisible. Uh, so we do have quite some way to go in our research of uh, these people and, and how they operate. There's also 
because of the umbrella term that is the the, the underpinning to the review, which was from uh, ICCE, the coach developer has these very, very different roles. So coach educator, mentor, assessor. So there's going to be very different things that they do, the different tasks, literally, but also the way they conduct themselves. Uh, and, and I suppose what's going to be really interesting for me over the next year or two in, in my research is how does the individual coach developer negotiate those different role frames? How much are they aware of the situation that they're in and how do they use that to the not only their advantage, but possibly more importantly, to the advantage of the coach learner they're working with? Yes, I very much look forward to reading the research, whether it's Thank in you. a few months or a little bit later, but I'm sure we will see it. And I will link more resources in, in the show notes. And uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck with your work. I'm really grateful for the invitation. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.